Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. I understand the difficulty and the heart-wrenching ordeal that these two Michaels are going through right now, but always... I need to focus on, and our government needs to focus on, what is going to keep Canadians safe into the future. And to demonstrate to China that they can just arrest Canadians and get what they want out of Canada, even for us going against the independence of our judicial system, would be absolutely unacceptable. I appreciate and support Mr. Trudeau's position. I wonder why he's changed and suddenly become so um, strongly view opinionated. On uh, on China, on the Chinese government, he was holding his fire for quite some time, but good for him that he's saying what he's saying. China and Meng Wanzhou developments uh, this week, including open letters to the federal government. One of them is uh, from 19 proponents suggesting Ms. Meng be released from her extradition to U.S. detention, that it's perfectly within Canadian law to go ahead and do that. And, of course, the Chinese government has jumped all over that with a foreign ministry spokesman suggesting that if China or if Canada were to, in fact, abrogate its extradition treaty requirements with the United States and somehow Ms. Wang were to be, Ms. Wang were to be returned to China, then perhaps China would look favorably on releasing Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, the uh, two Michaels. It doesn't add up because China has repeatedly insisted that the two cases are not related in any way, that uh, the Meng case has nothing at all to do with Kovrig and Spavor, so you can't have it both ways unless you're Beijing, I guess. Um, there's another letter from more than a dozen senators, including senators appointed by Mr. Trudeau, who are urging Magnitsky Law sanctions against the Chinese government and officials uh, guilty of human rights violations be engaged. The uh, hostage taken of uh, the two Michaels would be one example of how the Uyghur community, the Muslim Uyghur community in China, is being treated would be another. Conservative Party Senator Leo Husakis is one of the senators who uh, wrote the open letter from the senators to the federal government of Mr. Trudeau. And Senator Husakis joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Senator, thank you very much uh, for the time. And are you surprised at all at Mr. Trudeau's suddenly determined rejection of any release of uh, Ms. Meng without respecting Canada's courts and justice? I mean, he said it before, but, but he sounds really um, determined now. Thank you for having me on, Mr. Green. Uh, he is, he does sound determined, and there's been a, a little bit of a shift, and hopefully uh, that shift will continue so we can bring him exactly to where he needs to be on this particular issue. And in large part, it's, you know, I believe that shift is, is coming from Mr. Trudeau because of what he's been hearing from Canadians like uh, yourself and others across this country that uh, have clearly advocated that accepting, as some people are suggesting, uh, a diplomacy based on hostage exchange uh, is not the, the right thing to do. And I'm of the view that, that 
not only is it not the right thing to do, the soft diplomacy that Mr. Trudeau has been engaged in, and the truth of the matter is successive governments in Canada have been engaged with uh, with Beijing, is just not working. Uh, your letter accuses the Xi government of tyrannical behavior, quote-unquote, and accuses the Xi government of being, quote, the biggest threat to mankind and a danger to international security, end quote. The letter, as I said earlier, signed by more than a dozen senators, is also calling for imposition of Magnitsky Law sanctions against uh, Chinese officials engaged in the tyrannical behavior that we spoke about at the beginning. What options does the Magnitsky Law permit Canada to engage against specific Chinese government officials? Well, a shout-out to, to Senator No, uh, who co-sponsored the, the motion with me in the Senate, and we co-wrote this particular letter and has been uh, co-signed by, by many of our colleagues, and as you appropriately pointed out, many uh, many Trudeau-appointed senators as well. Uh, and, of course, the Magnitsky Act was an act passed and initiated in the Senate of Canada in 2017 by former Senator Renel Andrichuk, and it gives essentially the tools of the Canadian government to be able to hold corrupt officials of corrupt administrations and regimes like this one in China uh, to account. It gives us the opportunity to seize uh, their financial assets of these individuals, uh, the ones we can get our hands on here in Canada. It gives the Canadian government the authority to uh, prevent them uh, from acquiring travel visas to enter our country and send a clear message uh, to these tyrants that this type of behavior is not accepted by Canada and that we will hold them to account when they carry out this type of behavior. The beauty with this with this act, it's a tool that's been used as well by the current Trudeau government on a number of occasions against Venezuela, against mm-hmm. Myanmar, against Saudi Arabia. So we're encouraging them to certainly use it against, without a doubt, the biggest violator of human rights that mankind has ever seen in decades. Have you heard anything in reply to your letter? Not yet. In all fairness, we only sent it out to the Prime Minister a few days ago. It has been, though, a number of months that the motion has been tabled in the Senate by myself and Senator No, And it's also been a number of weeks now the opposition in the House of Commons has been calling on the government to use the Magnitsky Act. Uh, going back to my point uh, just at the outset here, the Trudeau government has used soft dis- diplomacy with the Chinese. I think we continue to turn a blind eye to their egregious behavior for far too long. We continue to kowtow uh, towards this, reg- this, this regime every time they, they act the way they do. We see now they're trampling all over the democracy movement in Hong Kong. They've shown absolutely no propensity to respect the agreement of when the transfer took place with Hong Kong of one state, two, two systems, uh, the internment of over a million, as, as far as we know, at least a million Uyghur Muslims in China in what, for all intents and purposes, are a concentration camp. Uh, we've seen their mil- increased militarization in the South Pacific. We've seen their belligerent behavior on the Indian border just a, a few days, a few days ago. ago. Uh, so this continues to just be a pattern of behavior we've seen from China for a number of decades. And the more we use soft diplomacy with this tyrant, the more they seem to get emboldened and continue to carry out this egregious behavior. So I now, think we should, have, we should have learned from history that when you try to appease tyrants, they just uh, take advantage of it. Uh, Senator, there is a CSIS report, and um, we'll be speaking with Sam Cooper from Global News Tomorrow, who's one of this country's absolutely finest uh, investigative journalists. And the report and uh, Sam's story on Global News uh, 
clearly suggests there are Canadians and prominent Canadians targeted by China to make Beijing's case for the Xi government within this country. And some of it may be based on making lucrative business arrangements with Canadians who have a significant national profile. Do you share the concern that China may be doing whatever it is in its power to influence influential Canadians to carry forward Beijing's message to Ottawa? Mr. Green, there's no doubt about it. China has become the world's second largest economy, and they've become the second largest economy by not having uh, labor laws that we consider essential. They've become the world's second largest economy by not having environmental standards that we fight for and we stand for in our country. They have become the second largest economy with having absolutely no respect for basic free enterprise principles. They're constantly devaluating their currency, for example. Um, they, we have seen time and time again uh, the Chinese set up systems which are weighted in their favor, and they've become the second largest economy by essentially taking advantage of the wealthiest three or four middle-class consumer markets in the world, the United States, Western Europe, Australia, and Canada. And of course, we've allowed that. It is, uh, we've allowed this to happen over successive governments, as I've mentioned, over successive decades. And there is no doubt, and the report that's coming out just really reinforces what we've seen now publicly. A lot of former uh, senior politicians and a lot of former senior bureaucrats and senior diplomats from our government, that once they leave government, they seem to forget that they were representatives of this great country and the values that this country stands for. And they go on to very lucrative commercial uh, careers. And very many of those lucrative commercial careers are intertwined directly or indirectly with China. We have about a minute left. How do you expect to see this whole drama, and it is a drama, uh, as far as uh, Meng Wanzhou is concerned and her detention in Canada on the extradition call by the United States, how do you see this coming to a conclusion? It just seems to wobble along with the headlines following headlines, but really nothing specific taking place other than, and this has been unfortunately ignored by at least some people, the court, the Brit Supreme Court of British Columbia ruling that, no, Ms. Meng may not return to China, that uh, there is an obligation under Canadian law that she satisfy law, Canadian law, that she can be released, um, given the facts of the extradition treaty. No, she cannot, she may not leave, regardless of what other letters may be suggesting. How do you see this ending? I, I, uh, I certainly want the Canadian government to respect the rule of law. This is what this country has been based on. All of us that have come to this country, we have either immigrated here or are children of immigrants who came here because this country is a democracy, because it respects human rights and it respects the rule of law. And if we lose that, we lose our whole Canadian identity. Now, what I hope the Canadian government does is we need to send a message to China that no longer will we be pursuing soft uh, diplomacy, that we will be firm, that we will be showing the door to Chinese entities like Huawei, we'll be showing the door to Chinese okay. entities like the China Bank, and, and stand up for our values. Senator, how do we, in, in the 30 seconds we have left, how do you propose we get Michael Spavor and Michael Korig back to Canada? I think the way we can do that is by standing up, as I said earlier, and being firm with China. I believe Canada is underestimating our leverage. We're a strong economy. We're a strong middle-class market. And the Chinese government, I believe, understands the bottom line more than anything else. And we haven't used that economic okay. leverage. 
Senator Hosakos, thanks very much for coming on the program. Good talking to you. Thank you, An sir. An honor to be on the program. Thank you so much. All the very best. Now, last November, a group of academics and former Canadian politicians, led by Professor Gordon Holden, executive director of the China Institute of the University of Alberta, visited China. One of their key objectives was to uh, persuade PRC, People's Republic of China officials, to consider the release of Michaels, Kovrig, and Spavor. Professor Holden joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Professor Holden, we've, we've spoken about your China mission last uh, November previously. Let me just ask you this. How specific was the focus on uh, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig? Was that the, the fundamental case that you were bringing to the Chinese government? Absolutely. Uh, with the Chinese, though, there's always a need for some tactics. And uh, for them to receive the delegation and engage in this dialogue, uh, given they were the hosts, there had to be an agenda that covered a range of issues, trade, investment. But for our side, from our perspective, it was really about the two Michaels. That was the top of our list. We tackled that first. And that was the point that we kept pressing on, although we also talked about those other issues, South China Sea, North Korea, uh, United States, you name it. And they were aware that your key issue was Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. They were aware. They would have known that even before we arrived. Uh, These are pretty sophisticated individuals who have uh, had long experience uh, running Chinese foreign policy, defense policy, um, and senior party members, they 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 can read. They knew that this was an issue uh, that was a very real one for for Canada. But of course, um, they have their own point of view, which is very distinct from ours. Uh, they weren't at first prepared to even admit that the two issues were linked, but they are linked, of course, and uh, they have now. China recently has actually come out and. Said so uh, you had some uh, distinguished and very accomplished Canadians with you, and uh, former cabinet ministers in the federal government were with you on, on this mission as well, um, I- including John Baird. He, he was with you. Were, were the Chinese, did, did the Chinese uh, reciprocate as far as the level uh, of importance or title, if you will, of the, their own government officials who communicated with you, who actually sat down and discussed the, uh, the two Michaels? It's a yes and no. I mean, they would not reveal their delegation until we had told them who was coming. Mm-hmm. I can recall a long time ago when, say, a Canadian premier went to China, uh, that he or she would see a, vi- uh, a vice premier of China. Um, those days are long gone, and visiting premiers from Canada now have trouble seeing a minister. So because there's been an inflation there, China has a sense of its own importance. Prime Minister will see a Vice Premier, maybe even the Premier. Uh, but uh, former, minister, former ministers, they knew this was significant. Uh, they made sure that we saw someone senior in the Foreign Ministry, and they sat not just in, met not just in Beijing, but down in a remote part of Sichuan where they were hosting uh, senior officials who had held, held the rank of Vice Minister in key um, in key ministries. In some cases, these were former party secretaries, which actually tends to outrank the minister. There was a retired major general from the People's Liberation Army. This was a senior delegation and actually exceeded my expectation. But technically, uh, these weren't former ministers. This were, but keep in mind the scale difference between Canada and China. I was delighted by the, um, by the, sc- sort of our, by our recognition 
of our delegation. On the other hand, I wasn't delighted that we weren't able to solve the problem of the two Michaels. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to ask you a, a question, Professor Holden. There's only one way I can do it because I'm broadcasting from home. I have to do it <laughs> while we're on the air. Are you able to stay with us and go into the next half hour for a little bit? Sure, I am. Absolutely. Thank you, because my uh, I have more questions for you. And my guest, who was scheduled for the next half hour, is now not able to uh, participate on the program. But this is such a huge issue, and it involves each and every one of us in the country. Everyone has an opinion on what should happen. Now, when it comes to the Meng Wanzhou, to Michael's case, clearly for Beijing, it's about Ms. Meng and um, Kovrig and Spavor are, I'm guessing, pawns in the game to them. Sadly, that is the case. I mean, I've never even been convinced that there's any case for them to answer. Uh, the timing, and they would not be in jail now if it had not been for the detention of Madame Meng. Um, again, they were taken virtually as hostages. China did not admit to that openly. They hinted at it in private, and now they've said it in public. Uh, this was a retaliation. Uh, China plays hardball when they want to. And this was hardball. Are they using this entire case, the two Michaels and Ms. Meng, to poke Donald Trump in the eye? I would say it's more the former than the latter. I mean, certainly it will do also um, is a factor for, for President Trump. But uh, to be honest, I think that the, the Americans have many, many fish to fry with the Chinese. This is one of many issues. That's part of the problem. For us, it's front and central, number one by far, in terms mm-hmm. of the battle irritants between our two countries. So the Americans, uh, they've got a lot of things, security-related, trade-related, um, people-related. This case is important for them, but it's not the central thing, and that is part of the imbalance. I think Madame Meng is very important to the Chinese, and quite frankly, if... This had been a middle manager, middle manager from Huawei, who'd been detained. The Chinese would have been annoyed, uh, and they would have let us know. Um, but it wouldn't have had nearly the effect. So it's hard to exaggerate. Huawei is the most successful Chinese company operating abroad. Not the biggest Chinese company, but the most successful. It's a poster child for modern China innovation, and it's very good at what it does. Uh, the daughter of the chairman, it's not perfect parallel. It's a little bit like Ivanka Trump. Uh, and Ren, Chairman Ren of the company, I am confident that he has access to the highest levels of the Chinese party and government. That would include President Xi Jinping. So I think it's really her significance uh, is, the, is the critical thing. Anything to do with Huawei, the Chinese government will pay attention to. But if it had been someone else, I don't think we'd be seeing this kind of heavy-duty retaliation or pressure on Canada. Uh, I've been looking at this, as we all have, the incremental developments in this case. And sometimes when it comes to the world of politics, I feel there's an alternate universe that's operating side by side with the real universe. And sometimes they merge, and intentionally so. This is my cumbersome way of suggesting, wondering whether there might be some secret deal in place. We have a letter suddenly arriving from 19 prominent Canadians to the government saying, under the law, it will be acceptable for Ms. Meng to be returned to China. We have the Prime Minister of Canada suddenly adopting a very strong line and position against China, which he has not done previously. Is it possible that there is a 
um, an understanding and a path that's been charted, which will see the release of Ms. Meng and the release of the two Michaels that we don't know about yet. Like or have I been watching too many movies? Go ahead. Have I been watching too many movies? No, you haven't been watching too many movies. Quite frankly, I mean, anything is possible. And uh, a lot of thought is going into this by government, by government officials. Um, I'm certainly the government, including at the level of the PMO, the Prime Minister, we're aware of Article 23.3, and I'm confident. Um, others have actually urged this previously. Eddie Goldenberg back in spring, I guess, um, former aide, key aide, political aide, advisor to the Prime, Prime Minister Krejci, argued in an op-ed in, I think, the Global Mail that the government should do this. So they've been aware of this option for some time and that there was a, a body of, of, of opinion that they should do so. For the families, of course, it's an agony. Of course. And, uh, for example, for the wife of Michael Kovrig, um, would very much like to see that option exercised. And I, I would, if it was my closest family member, I'd probably wish exactly the same thing. Yes, no so doubt. I think that's, but I think what this has done, the public letter, it's forced the hand of the government, who were staying in the weeds a bit, being quiet, and now have felt they had to be straightforward and, and, uh, and clear about government positions. So now it would be very, very hard for me to imagine circumstances where the current government could go back on those statements, which are pretty clear. Uh, we're not going to do anything until the process is over. So the we have the red line. What would be if the Americans choose to drop the extradition request. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine had a theory on that. He said, well, why, why, why don't we have a scenario? He thinks there may be a scenario like this. The United States and China work out a deal, or the United States and Huawei work out a deal, where Huawei admits some level of guilt uh, to the charges that the United States is filing. And uh, maybe not the whole package, but a certain amount. And then they pay a significant fine. And Ms. Meng is re- returned to, because then, the, then, then America drops the extradition request. Ms. Meng is returned to China, and the two Michaels return to Canada. That's my friend's uh, potential uh, scenario. And he's a very, very well-versed individual in international mm-hmm. politics. Is that a, do, you, do you think that could happen? It's conceivable. And, of course, it may, I doubt if it's going to be done before the election in the United States. The two parties are contending who could be tougher on China right now. So I don't see it happening before November. But after that point, um, again, it is, it is conceivable. I mean, these prisoner swaps deals to release people, um, uh, it was common during the Cold War. Not an everyday thing, but spies usually in exchange to Checkpoint Charlie. And, That's and right, crossing that the bridge in Berlin. It was a pretty normal thing. Uh, the Americans are capable of that. In fact, President Trump amused publicly at one point that maybe he'd make a deal. Uh, he, he's a deal maker. So, again, if he should be elected, um, or I suppose even in the 100 days he would have if he's defeated, it's conceivable. And if it freed the Michaels, and America chose to do that, um, I could see some some advantage in that. I mean, there was another company called ZTE, or ZTE, if you wish. It's a Chinese phone maker, heavily dependent on, on U.S. chips. And they were basically being put out of business. Uh, then Xi Jinping, I believe, or senior officials in the Chinese government, appealed to President Trump say, look, Give us a break here. So instead what happened, rather than being shut out of the U.S. market, 
they paid a big fine, hundreds of millions of dollars, but they kept doing business. So that kind of a thing, America's not beyond doing that. It would be a little bit annoying for, as a Canadian, quite frankly. You have said sometimes that the Americans might be fighting China to the last Canadian because we stuck to the letter of the law and they would cut a deal. But they're the ones who issued the extradition request. It's in their hands. They can drop it at any time. And in fact, as I understand it, it's easier for them to cease the pursuit of Madame Mo while she's still abroad. Once she's in their custody, I'm told, it gets a little bit more complicated in terms that she'd be enmeshed in a U.S. court system and it's a little bit tougher for there to be intervention. Not impossible. So uh, I think your friend, is, you know, it's conceivable that those sorts of things could happen. Uh, but this, there's a lot of time to run, I'm afraid, before we get to that point. Professor Holden, I thank you very much for the extra time today and all the time you've given us on this case. It really is an international drama, and the key players are this country and uh, and China. And we don't know how this is going to play itself out. But uh, hopefully, before too much longer, we will see some satisfactory resolution um, with the two Michaels case. We need to get these. Well, thank uh, these you very much, Roy. And I, of course, like all of your listeners and yourself, uh, we, we hope for the very best for the two Michaels who are in difficult circumstances. Thank you. Thanks for the time. Professor Gordon Holden, the executive director of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yes, there's absolutely systemic racism. I can give you a couple of examples. We have a physical abilities, a requirement evaluation. It's an obstacle course. Um, in there, um, there's a six-foot mat uh, that you have to do a broad jump. And there are people in all different cultures that may not be six feet, including um, there's not a lot of women that are six feet tall. Be systemic discrimination, but I'm trying to think of uh, systemic racism. Um, uh, well, there was the uh, commissioner of the RCMP being asked, Brenda Lucky, being asked to uh, provide examples of systemic racism. And uh, she said what she said, and I've heard this now several times. And each time I wonder how it is that the commissioner of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police would respond that way. I can't for the life of me understand how that would come out of Commissioner Lucky's mouth. Uh, you heard the question. It was just total bewilderment, and, and honestly, you should be prepared for that question because the, the, the issue of systemic racism within organizations in this country, including police organizations, and maybe specifically police organizations, uh, has been front and center for weeks now. And to say that, that it has to do with uh, height requirements and, um, I don't know, I... I'm virtually shaking my head now. As you can't do anything real any longer. Everything's virtual, so I'm virtually shaking my head. As I'm sure my good friend Sherry Benson Podelchik is as well, or I'm assuming she is, former RCMP officer who was severely bullied and sexually harassed by male officers while she was a member 
of the RCMP. She's the author of Women Not Wanted, Find Your Voice, and Lake Agassiz Murders, public speaker on racism and safety in the workplace, and you can find her on Sherry Benson Podolchuk.com. Sherry Benson Podolchuk.com. That is one of the most bewildering responses that I can imagine, Sherry. Do you, do you share that? Uh, thank you uh, for having me, Roy, and it's nice to, uh, and it's really important that we're having this conversation. I think at the moment there must be a tremendous pressure on the leader of the RCMP right now, and uh, to say there, uh, I can understand the, the pause with regards to saying there's systemic racism, because I think sometimes when people don't experience it, uh, they might not recognize it as a systemic problem. And so it's her, her interpretation of when her previous uh, response was that she, you know, all these different kinds of definitions. And it would have been better if she was more informed exactly what the reality is for, for many um, officers who are experiencing, uh, who have experienced racism in the RCMP, but also who have, who have observed it. And I think there's probably more covert racism than there is overt racism. In the world of social media now, we are seeing it. So it was probably always there. We just didn't see it. Yeah. I'm just thinking the commissioner, I don't want to stay with this, uh, but I'm just thinking the commissioner should have been prepared. There was time. Uh, uh, initially, she said she didn't believe there was systemic racism, and then she said there was. And she clearly wasn't ready for the for the question, and that didn't serve anybody well. I'm looking at the the blog post that uh, the, the blog that you posted, or the, the the position that you posted on your blog, under the bullying umbrella, police culture, leadership, and bullying. Let me just read a first line here. Um, we have to acknowledge the problem of racism and police brutality. Again, I will add that not all police officers fall into this category. However, the very existence of this violence, the silence of bystanders, the lack of accountability to the general public, yes, we have a problem. Uh, expand on that for us, please, Sherry. Well, it's, it's uh, after watching that video uh, of uh, what happened in Alberta, you know, the, the rest, all we saw that, right? We watched the whole thing and realized, yes. well, there's a problem here and, you know, definitely a problem. I started thinking, you know, is, is racism a systemic problem in the RCMP? And I thought, it, it, for some reason, I'm not sure if that's it. And then I was uh, thinking about it and thinking about it, and I realized, boom, it's not just that. It is bullying, and it is the bullying and un umbrella, and underneath that are these, are these different things. So it's exclusion, racism, misogyny, conflicts, the other, and homophobia. So the there is a systemic problem of the bullying, and underneath that are all these other issues that uh, are, are need, to, need to be addressed. And in, there's pockets, of, there's pockets of, of racism that are like overt you can see it it's there's no you you can't pretend it and then there's the covert that that things happen that you don't see that nobody's paying attention to it has just become the norm and same with these other issues underneath the bullying umbrella and i thought this is a perfect opportunity now for people to to pay more attention to that and in, instead of having you know meetings after meetings after meetings actually taking action in reforming and restructuring things so we can eliminate this umbrella completely. Another line in your in your blog is, had I had this training, and we're talking about racism training and uh, sensitivity training and the kind of training you just mentioned, had I had this training before or at any time during my 20 years, my approach to situations 
would have been much different. That's you as one police officer, and we can extend that, I would imagine, by thousands of police officers, uh, current and former in the RCMP, will probably say the same thing. Oh, absolutely. And I, it, 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 we had a very short you know, cultural training when, when I, I joined. I don't know what it's like now, so I can't, I can't judge or make any comments there. But it was very short, and we didn't have a lot of uh, mental health scenarios or uh, you know, crisis scenarios where you're really experiencing what it's like to deal with someone who's having a who is suicidal those we didn't have enough of those because that's a perfect place to learn and also a perfect place to learn when you see someone saying homophobic remarks uh, they're being a mis- they're uh, misogynistic comments and jokes when someone's being making racist comments or implying that you have to behave a certain way because this person doesn't belong to the group Th- that's a perfect place to teach that and then have it ongoing. And one one uh, training that I just took was trauma informed trauma approached trauma informed approach training, and it was a five day five day course. And I thought, oh my gosh! By day three, I thought my the way I treated people in crisis situations would have been so much different had I had. Give us an example, please. So, for example, you're coming to you're you're talking to somebody, and they just start you they start you thinking they're just being belligerent when in fact they have a. Uh, an implicit memory of trauma that they've experienced with the police. We don't know what's happened to them. They, maybe they don't like the uniform. Maybe they don't like the, the, the fact that they're stopped. They're, they're afraid. So they've had some sort of experience and trauma in their past being stopped. And, of course, if you don't deal with a trauma, what happens to it? It gets locked inside, and it spits out at the most inappropriate times. And your survivor behaviors that you had as a child or as a young person dealing with trauma, those survivor behaviors don't work as an adult. So if you can be more compassionate and recognize, okay, that's not really normal behavior. What's happening for this person? Be curious. The, the most powerful weapon, I remember our instructors telling us, Roy, was our mouth. Talking, listening, communicating, being curious. I never forgot that. And, and, and uh, we were told that if it takes you two hours to convince someone to drop a weapon, as long as it, there's not immediate grievous bodily harm to that, um, somebody else, or the police, or, or, or a witness, or, or somebody who's in the home, then you, you take that time. And mm-hmm. if you don't have the skills, you bring in somebody who does. Uh, I'm going to be talking, after I speak with you, I'm going to be speaking with Sydney Leckie, who's the RCMP superintendent and head of the Kamloops British Columbia Detachment, and Byron McCorkle, who's the director of community and protective services in the city of Kamloops. They have a program called CAR-40. And for our listeners, uh, CAR-40 is uh, a program where when a 911 call involving possible mental health issues is received by the RCMP in Kamloops and the detachment, the call is answered by a police officer and a mental health professional uh, together. They go together on the call. And that's been in place in Kamloops, I believe, since 2014, and it's proving to be very, very successful. And the issue of uh, how mental health issues are addressed by police has also been a front and center, an important issue that's been discussed and is currently being debated and discussed in this in this country. That's that's just a great approach, isn't it, Sherry? Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, you you have to re- people have to realize that you know things can unfold so quickly. 
in a, a, a crisis situation, a mental health a, a crisis situation, emotions are high. You just, you just, they can change so quickly. And of course, the when the police go and there's a mental health uh, a, a person there as well. The, the idea is to de-escalate and have everybody come home safely. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that's really great. That's uh, that having a nationwide policy. Uh, tools and regulations and, and giving people giving the RCMP the tools and the resources that they need to to have someone like that on every call I it just makes sense fantastic idea it makes sense that this car 40 program should be in place right across Canada and quickly I th- it's 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 a wonderful idea and it's you know we have to start thinking beyond what we do now it's not working so what can we do instead of pointing fingers what can we do now we can't change the past we can't deny it how can we move forward so nobody else dies under the Bullying Umbrella is a blog piece by Sherry Benson Podolchuk. Just go to sherrybensonpodolchuk.com and uh, you can read it there and uh, you read all about Sherry and find out about her books, including Women Not Wanted, Find Your Voice, and uh, Lake Accuracy Murders, former RCMP officer, 20 years an RCMP officer. Sherry, when it comes to the police culture, and I'm just quoting from your blog, mm-hmm. as I did just before the break, the police culture is one of protecting our own and anyone who's not does not fit into that mindset, any officer who does not conform to the go-along to get-along to cover up for their partners is considered the other. This can be anyone. Well, it, that's what happened to you. Uh, in a, and in a, and in a broader context, I would imagine the scenarios, the potential scenarios are many. They, uh, they certainly were. And it's interesting you should say that because I was just talking to my brother and his son saying, I, I you know, I, I, they were having a, a barbecue and I was coming, I had to, I said I had to leave and this is what I'm, I'm talking to you. Oh, what are you talking about? So I was talking about bullying, the, the bullying umbrella. And then I, and he says, well, what do you mean? And I said the same thing. I said, if somebody, because he knows about me, I said, if somebody would have said, you know, stop calling her those names at the very beginning of my career, at the very beginning, we're talking the first year, if they, somebody would have, a bystander would have said, stop calling her those names, don't touch her, we're not putting up with that, things would have changed. It doesn't mean the people who were the, the bullies would have changed, but the, the atmosphere would have said, we're not putting up with that. And uh, nobody is going to be considered the other. We all have to respect each other. Uh, we can't change attitudes, but we can make it uncomfortable for that type of mindset. Yeah. yeah. You know, when we, when we talk about this, and in the broader context of our societal discussion now, it takes me back as well to the conversations that I had with you mm. and with other women within the RCMP who were sexually harassed, who were sexually assaulted, and initially, the the pushback from the uh, from the, uh, the 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 police from the RCMP was significant. Uh, I know that um, uh, there was there was comment from the commissioner's office that well they were troublemakers. Well, no, they weren't troublemakers. They were reporting on systemic uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault that they were victimized by, and then a hundred million dollar settlement was arrived at out of court. So they went from being troublemakers to being uh, lauded as heroes by the same people who call them troublemakers. And that said to me, there's a huge problem at the top. <laughs> that's, and that's where, that's where the, 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 the bullying umbrella all that, that falls, the race, uh, sexism and misogyny falls underneath that. And then, of course, you can fall, break that down even farther into, you know, trauma to the victims, long-term, long-term uh, damaged relationships, 
and then go down even farther the damage to the reputation to the RCMP yeah. in in their high and uh, and 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 uh, the cost uh, yeah. everybody seems to everyone's painted with the same brush and then of course we know that's not fair right uh, but right now with what's happening in in uh, the news we're the, all the officers the ones who've never done anything never thought anything a negative about um, indigenous people or women or anyone considered the other they didn't look they didn't think like that they're unfortunately being painted with that brush and that's that's putting more uh, mental health damage to them and so that really affects the morale and how they do their job I would get emails after I would do a program and uh, and we'd speak to uh, the women who had been uh, sexually assaulted, sexually harassed uh, while in the RCMP. Emails after I spoke with you, and it was like I spoke with you uh, when Women Not Wanted first came out, and then uh, there was the it was Catherine Gallifords case. Case became in, became national, and uh, and Janet Merlo and Krista Carley, who tragically took her own life almost exactly two years ago. Yeah. And I would get emails, Sherry, from former officers at the end of those programs, and they would write, "I saw what was going on." I'm ashamed I didn't do anything, but I had my career to protect, or I didn't know, I didn't want to deal with, I didn't want to be placed on the other list, and so I did nothing. I'm sh- I'm ashamed about it, but they felt like it was an, it was a need to confess to me what, what they hadn't done that they should have done. You know, Roy, and I understand that. I, I remember speaking up the first time, and I was scared as hell, and I, I because I just I realized that oh my God, I'm being destroyed here. I, I it's not fair that I have to leave. And I'm I sorry, can't... Sherry. We have about 15 seconds. I haven't okay. been watching the clock. I've been okay. talking to you. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Roy. It's really important that at least keep the conversation going, and with a conversation, there comes creative change. Well, I'll, I'll ask you back on the show for sure. Sorry, we interrupted the barbecue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Take care, Sherry. Yeah, you too. Stay safe. Thanks. Sherry Benson, Podolchuk.com for her website. She's an amazing woman and uh, read women not wanted. Uh, Sherry told us stories about what happened to her when she was placed on that other list by her fellow officers. And uh, it was not pretty, not at all. I believe in increasing them and, and supporting them when it comes to, again, community outreach and, and other areas, be it mental health issues on a, on a call. Uh, yeah, are, are they uh, not trained for that? I, I agree. There should be better training for for the police in those situations and, and bringing someone, an expert, along with them. What you're hoping for is actually taking place in Kamloops, British Columbia. It's called the CAR 40 program. And uh, during daytime hours, I understand, when a 911 call involving possible mental health issues is received by the Kamloops RCMP detachment, the call is answered physically by a police officer and a mental health professional together. They go together to answer that particular call. Uh, Sidney Leckie is the RCMP superintendent and head of the Kamloops detachment. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Superintendent Leckie, thanks for taking the time. You're very, very welcome. And Byron McCorkle is the director of community and protective services for the city of Kamloops. Mr. McCorkle, thank you, sir. Hi, Roy. Thanks. Uh, Superintendent Leckie, the CAR 40 program, I understand, has been in place since 2014. What got it started? Well, it was kind of the, the, the same uh, theory that uh, we're starting to hear now uh, very publicly is um, many of the calls for service that we deal with are directly related to the uh, mental health um, issues that are in our community. And it was um, a partnership with Interior Health to try and find ways to work collaboratively and um, take some of the pressure not only off of uh, police but off of our emergency services 
ambulance and uh, emergency rooms where we often have to take our clients. It really makes absolute sense uh, when, when you look at it. Uh, and, and I'm surprised that it isn't a system that is really employed right across Canada by, uh, by, by each community and by every police service. Um, so, so we have then, uh, Mr. McCorkle, we have an RCMP officer and a psychiatric nurse, as I understand it, responding to mental health and or drug concern calls. How well has it worked in Kamloops for the last six years? Well, I think it's had a, a very good track record uh, of being able to provide an alternate uh, method of uh, dealing with these very difficult uh, and challenging situations. And uh, what we'd like to see from a community perspective is an expansion of it so that we can have uh, more uh, opportunities for our police to be able to have professionals along with them who can deal with uh, mental health uh, issues directly. Yeah, Superintendent Lecky, I imagine for the police officer, it has to be particularly helpful to have a mental health professional with the officer at, at, at any time, and they can work together. And I, and I would imagine that that relationship has to build over time. But can you think of specific cases or um, incidents where it has been particularly useful to have both the officer and the mental health professional there together? Well, this is a, a, a very common occurrence for us, um, and, and I mentioned the fact that it takes some of the pressure off of police and, and all the other emergency services, but um, as recently as yesterday, this is a, almost a daily occurrence where you have someone who is oftentimes suicidal uh, for whatever the reasons, whether it's drug, alcohol, combination of the two, as well as mental health, because uh, they're often codependent or uh, co-affected by a variety of things at the same time. So what ends up happening is we, uh, we um, being the police being the agency of last resort, as I like to call them, uh, we're called and we go, we try to apprehend if, uh, if the circumstances are correct. Uh, under the Mental Health Act, we will apprehend and bring them um, to the hospital. The problem is that the hospital oftentimes can't properly assess someone who is intoxicated and or high and or violent. So then it comes back to, well, what do you do with them if they can't be in the hospital, can't be properly assessed? So they oftentimes wind up in a police cell. Um, and what, what we do then is we try to get them sobered up uh, to a point where it's sufficient that we can get them properly assessed. Well, instead of taking that person back to the hospital, we can oftentimes call uh, our CAR 40 program when they're available to have the nurse and the, the member arrive and do an assessment right in the cell block so they don't have to come out. And, and oftentimes when a person's sobered up, it's a very different thing than when they're not and, and yeah. they can be properly assessed, which is why they don't want them in the hospital per se when they're, when they're intoxicated or drunk. So likely that's quite reasonable. very great Sorry, opportunity there for when, when it does work and it can work well on a regular basis. Yeah. So so likely there have been many cases, maybe many cases or cases already this week, where where situations have been diffused by the presence of the police officer and the mental health professional, which might otherwise have resulted in different conclusions. That's correct. Um, and there are those that there are occasions where uh, nothing seems to help. We're still the agency of last resort, and that occurred as recently as yesterday as well. And that's where we have someone who is not very pleasant to deal with, whether they're sober or not, but they're in the cell block because they have other mental health issues, and they're in the sorry in the uh, emergency, and they get medically cleared, but they're not quite sober. So where do they go? 
and uh, immediately after clearing the emergency room, they're right back in trouble. We're getting calls from uh, the public for their behavior, and they wind up back in our care. So the follow-up to that is it would be nice if we had a sobering centre or something like that where we could take them to um, so that they could be assessed and treated and monitored by people other than a, a guard and a cell block of a police station. We don't currently have that available to us. Mr. McCorkle, I would imagine uh, nothing is ex- inexpensive in this world, but I would imagine there's a significant cost involved in, in the program, and maybe that's why it isn't a 24-7 service at this point. But what about the cost, and how well is it being received? How well has the, has the program been received by the people of Kamloops in the six years it's been in operation? Well, I think it's been very well received uh, to the point, uh, as Superintendent Leckie is indicating, is that uh, it is providing a service that, that uh, is needed Unfortunately, the way things are funded, um, you know, the city of Kamloops funds the RCMP. Uh, they are our municipal police force here, uh, and we have a great working relationship with with uh, Superintendent Leckie and, and all the staff here. But where the uh, health nurse comes from is Interior Health, and the provincial government funds for uh, that operation. And so, there's a disconnect, if there were to be uh, to say it that way, where. A community-based solution needs to then go through uh, a larger filter, and sometimes it's not, uh, you know, with the same earnest concern. Um, so we're showing that this works. Um, we're showing that we'd like to expand it. We're we're prepared to uh, work with Superintendent Lecky to see more police officers involved, but we don't control the health budget, so we don't control the ability of, to to get the other staff. Uh, Superintendent Lecky talked about the need for a sobering center, which, again, is something that the city is prepared to talk about uh, and uh, look at creating here in the community because it is a weakness in the system right now. When, when individuals are ending up in basically a city-funded jail to uh, deal with an issue that could be better served uh, through a sobering center or through um, a long-term detox program or um, any one of a number of um, other agencies that are currently funded through a different model. Um, and so we'd like to see more linkage between all the people involved in these situations, um, a mental health court uh, rather than the uh, traditional court system for some of these individuals might be uh, effective as well. So there's a number of issues that need to come to the table before um, for it to be really successful. And uh, I guess Kamloops is prepared to be at that table. Yeah, it really presents many opportunities. Uh, it opens many opportunities and, and avenues to deal with the issue of a 911 call from someone who uh, may have a mental health issue or may have an addiction problem or both going on at the same time. Uh, the fact that the officer goes out with a mental health professional just shows here again, as you've just said, Mr. Uh, McCorkle, offers opportunities uh, to take it beyond just where it is today. Now, when it comes to cost, uh, is it significantly expensive to, to the city of Kamloops? And, uh, and have you had interest expressed by other communities across this country? We've, uh, over the years, had people uh, speaking to us about the CAR 40 program, and there are examples like it uh, throughout B.C. In, in various communities, maybe under a different name. Um, but basically for us, this is a relationship that we have through our RCMP with Interior Health uh, and their nursing staff. And so, um, you know, it, it for us, is we are, are um, you know, Superintendent Lecky is putting his staff in a position to be able to respond to that. So uh, there's no, uh, it's part of our police budget. Uh, I wouldn't be able to break out exactly uh, 
you know, it's an officer's time for the time that they're riding. Uh, no, I understand. With, with the nurse. So, yeah. um, but as far as the program and the overall program, there's the nurse needs to be funded. The, uh, you know, the coordination of efforts need to be uh, considered. And, and ultimately, it needs to be that community-based solution um, where we are uh, collectively saying that, uh, we want to handle these cases in this different sort of manner, um, knowing that a lot of the time there's there's risks and concerns and, and uh, potential violence that a police officer needs to be at. But at the same time, they, they can be handled in, in a, a different way and with maybe a better outcome in some right. cases if we could go into some of these other systems. Yeah. Superintendent Lecky, we have about 30 seconds left. How did your individual officers respond to this program, to the CAR 40 program? How do they feel about it? Oh, it's a natural way of doing business. Um, every, it's just a generally accepted, and, and if the service isn't available because someone's on leave or training or whatever, we, we certainly feel the pressure and, and uh, wishing they were here. But the, if there's something I'd just like quickly to add is it's not just about re- responding to calls for service. They, do, they also participate in things like interactive case assessment meetings on specific clients and proactive type arrangements where they can go out and reach out in the community. So you can oftentimes get people before they go off the, the, the rails, so to speak, and, uh, and help to have better health outcomes for, for them and, and better outcomes in the criminal justice system as well. It's just a terrific concept, and the fact that it's worked effectively and is supported by the community and has done has been so for six years speaks volumes. Uh, Inspector, or Superintendent, I'm sorry, Lecky, thank you so much for your time, and Mr. McCorkle, good talking to you as well. Thanks. You betcha. All the best. You're welcome. Thank you. Sidney Lecky is the superintendent of the uh, Kamloops Detachment of the RCMP. He's the uh, commander there, and Byron McCorkle is the director of community and protective services for the city of Kamloops on the CAR 40 program in which an RCMP officer and a mental health professional both attend calls from uh, well, that could involve mental health and or addiction issues. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.